Fathers at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the Academy. My name is Terrell Taylor. I'm Kyle Romero, your spooktacular co-host, serving up frights and fights in the land of Yarnum. Happy Halloween. Uh, I'm your pumpkin baby, yeah. Derek Price. I'm actually born on Halloween. so. Oh yeah, you are. True. That is right. I'm actually a Halloween baby. Yep. Our little pumpkin boy. <laughs> I don't, what does a pumpkin do? It just sits there, and then it gets its brain carved out. That's oh actually extractive industry. Very relevant production. to today's I was going to say that just sitting there like a pumpkin is something that like a baby would do, but the whole carve-out brain, not a thing a baby would do. So yeah. <laughs> I hate it. Ugh, kids, and they're always wanting their brains taken out. Maybe in the land of Yarnum they would. Am I right? <laughs> Am I I learned the name of the land in this game. Yarnum. You. Yes, it is Yarnum. Uh, today's episode for October the 22nd uh, will focus on the game. Well, it's Halloween. Can we say it all together? <laughs> Bloodborne. Bloodborne. <laughs> I mean, you paused like we were going to. I was wondering what you were doing. It's Did Halloween. you start doing something else? Fun times. It's so, I just want to say Bloodborne when you say it. That's all I want, Terrell. So the focus for today's episode will be the game Bloodborne. So warm and fuzzy of a way to say a game that is anything but warm and fuzzy. Uh, and the topic for today will be Bloodborne and the politics of failure. Uh, we will be discussing the game uh, Bloodborne, published by FromSoft Games in March 2015, alongside Jesper Jules' The Art of Failure and an essay by Lauren Hudson called In Bloodborne's Brutal World, I Found Myself. We're back in person and we're here to talk about this great game, Bloodborne, that I didn't enjoy very much, but everyone else loved. And I'm I'm into it and I played it for you because I love you. You're such a good friend. You're welcome. I do want to say my affect in relation to this game is not necessarily love. It's something more complicated, but we'll get into it. I will say love. Okay. Um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. But uh, So tell us about this game. Why don't we describe the game? Well, yes. Uh, before we get into the game, I um, just want to say a couple of things just about our discussion about the game going into. We played up to the second technical boss fight, uh, which is the boss fight with Father Gascoigne. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, and we also played through the boss that came right before that, which was the Cleric Beast. Uh, the choice for to stop at the... Um, a stop at Father Gascoigne was mostly because a number of people on forums and in discussion posts say that Father Gascoigne is kind of like the first exam of the game, and that if you can figure out how to beat Father Gascoigne, you're 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 getting what this game is about. You're you're sort of wrestling with the mechanics, and you're on the right path. Um, and we can talk about how that is that you can play a game and sort of have that experience uh, with it where, you know, you're doing it, you're making it through, but you're not really engaging with the mechanics and how Bloodborne may or may not be uh, conducive to that. The other thing we want to make clear is that we won't be focusing too much on the story and the whole world that's sort of being laid out, especially since we haven't really played through the entirety of the game, trying to cut down the pieces to make it sort of that this is something that's accessible, someone can pick up the game, and even though it would take a good number of hours to get to this point. Unless you're really good. I maybe. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. I think it's and you know the the enemies hit as hard if not harder than the bosses. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. There's a there's a learning curve and the game certainly is not making it easy. So definitely take some time. Uh but we're not going to focus too much on the overall story, what the world means, what the endings mean. Really thinking about what kind of stories can come out of one's uh, engagement with the mechanics and the gameplay uh and maybe a little bit of how Bloodborne and the Souls game do there's a little bit of um 
environmental storytelling and whether or not that's desirable uh, as a way to uh, engage or tell a story through the medium of video games. So Bloodborne came out on March 2015 on the PlayStation 4. It was developed by From Software, a company mostly known for the Dark Souls series. Bloodborne is not a part of that series, but is something of a sibling to Dark Souls insofar as it has the same sort of elements to the design. Uh, known for being extremely difficult, uh, which should probably clarify, and we can have a bigger conversation about this later. When we say difficult, we mean that it's punishing. And there are particular aspects of the game uh, that make it particularly punishing for mistakes that you make. Uh, the famous saying for most of the FromSoft games, uh, prepare to die. Uh, or sometimes prepare to cry, depending on uh, <laughs> who's sort of uh, riffing on that. So the Dark Souls series includes three mainline games up to this point, uh, as of our recording in 2019. Uh, Dark Souls 1, Dark Souls 2. And Can I guess the last you one? You guessed it, or I guess someone's about to guess it. <laughs> I actually don't know what it could be. <laughs> what could it be? <laughs> what is it? Ooh, Dark Souls 3. Oh, that's right. That makes you sense. know, it's funny, because one of the reasons why I'd say I love Bloodborne is that unlike Kyle's Dark Souls... not in it. <laughs> unlike Dark Souls, Dark Souls encourages you to somewhat be measured and you know, not be super aggro. Bloodborne <laughs> totally wants you to rush in from time to time and just be like one of my favorite memes, which is Michelangelo. I looked it up because it's he's got it's a Ninja Turtle guy's teeth showing. He's got the orange headband and it's cowabunga it is. And I'm looking at you right now, Kyle. You're like two feet away from me for the first time in a long time as we're recording. And rather than just being mad and looking out my window or looking at my AC unit that I wish was on because I can't turn it on because it makes too much noise while we're trying to record this over distance, but now I can just look at you. I just think, man, cowabunga it is. I even have a mic stand. Whoa, cowabunga it is. Sparks are flying in the you studio. You forgot about folks. like the like affective experience of recording with me. Yes, <laughs> like just the rage and the anger. Gosh. I'm sorry. Kyle is the Dark Souls of oh, no. people in this podcast. No, nope. you had dodged at the right time. Nope, nope. He's the Bloodborne because that means I get to totally aggro back for okay. all the aggro okay. he gives me. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so, yes, those are the three games in the Dark Souls series proper. Uh, FromSoft has also published two games that are more or less in the family of actually three. Sorry, three games that are more or less in the family of Dark Souls. The first would be Demon Souls. Uh, this is the conceptual parent to the original Dark Souls, released on the PlayStation 3 in 2009. Uh, in many ways, functionally, the kind of prototype or rethinking of the game, there's some of the things that um, are kind of more iconic about Dark Souls that hadn't yet been developed and didn't make their way into uh, Demon Souls yet. But in a lot of ways, if you play Demon Souls, you get a, a sense for what's really going on in Dark Souls. Uh, the other one is, of course, Bloodborne, which we're talking about now. Uh, and earlier this year, in March of 2019, a game called Sekiro Shadows Die Twice was released. Uh, and that is similar in a number of ways. Uh, has some extra elements that, in my opinion, uh, actually make the game less satisfying than I find Bloodborne or Dark Souls. Hmm. Uh, I just wanted to also throw in that not only has From Software like been making, has turned their own game uh, into a genre, more or less, like... Uh, Lots of other companies have made like Dark Souls like yes. like games. Uh, what's the? There was like a samurai one. Neo. Neo. Mm. Uh, there's like a, a mech one by a German developer who you I are correct. Know. Didn't that come out I for the Xbox exclusive? Was I, that an Xbox exclusive? I can't recall what it was called, but I just remember there was like 
a, a system. I remember them describing on a Waypoint Radio or something like you would you would attack limbs to get right. specific pieces to upgrade your thing. I don't remember what that game's you called. You are correct. Um, and, you know, we can even take a back second and say that, well, um, a popular game for, I guess, all consoles, uh, Hollow Knight is also uh, designed yes. yeah. uh, in that uh, that same vein. The game I was thinking of was The Surge by Deck 13 Interactive GmbH. They're based in Frankfurt. Right, cool. I have awesome. to know that. It's important that I know this. <laughs> he, he, he knew it without looking it up. Didn't even he look just, it up. He just sat there thinking really, really hard. I was just like going through it. the databases of German yep. games in my mind. His mind palace. Anyway, right. I just wanted to add that it's become somewhat of a genre, yes. more or less. Yes. Like this, it went from just a series to uh, like many developers make these quote unquote souls likes. Yeah. Right. And a number, despite it also becoming a genre, there's been a sort of um, difficult to describe uh, sort of breaking down and compartmentalization of some of the core mechanics of the soul genre, which we can go into some of those uh, right now, talking about a little bit of the basic FromSoft formula. Yeah. Uh, especially the Dark Souls line, they tend to be fairly traditional Western fantasy tropes. Uh, knights and armor, mages, swords and magic, those are kind of the mechanics and weapons that you sort of deal with in a kind of action RPG gameplay style. The thing that makes a Souls game uh, unique, or the sort of signature mechanic that has been stolen and used in a variety of different uh, places is the death mechanic. Uh, wherein, if you are playing the game, you accumulate experience. In most of the Souls games, those experience take the form of souls. So you're killing these enemies and you're sort of accruing souls as you're producing. And those souls can, when you go back to the sort of game's hub world to be used, or at, uh, different games have different places for it, but more or less those souls then get used to either upgrade your weapons, upgrade your strength, upgrade your health. But if you die before you take your souls or blood echoes or experience uh, and you're able to use them to level yourself up, you drop them. That they will lock, they will lock themselves in the place wherever uh, it is that the enemy killed you last. And then you've got one chance. It's, it's Eminem. It's 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 <laughs> one shot. One shot. Do not miss uh, your chance to yeah. mob spaghetti. <laughs> to get them back. If you are killed by the enemy that killed you originally or killed anywhere else within the world before you have a chance to pick up your souls again, they are gone forever. You can't get them back. There's no save. Well, I don't think there's a save file system you can... It was like mm -hmm. the lantern. As a matter of fact, oh, I think oh, in, oh, yeah, yeah. in Dark Souls, there, there distinctly is not. And that's the thing yeah. that trips a lot of people up early on, is that you don't have to save your game. It is always auto-saving. Right. So, uh, originally, when Bloodboard came out, it was known for ridiculous ridiculously long load times so oh, okay. whenever you died and there were these uh terrible terrible videos of uh people saying oh well i just died in bloodborne time to push myself with like however many push-ups so <laughs> <laughs> you just like you know. two deaths and then you gotta take a break and that man arnold schwarzenegger crazy story it's true crazy never knew <laughs> that's how he got so big that's how he got that was the first so big, big man i could think <laughs> i was like who's a strong man we're so we're so hip and with Just it so right now. It. Yeah, Jeez. the guy, the mountain, Game of Thrones. Oh yeah, yeah yeah, him. The mountain, half Big Thor. Man. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Cool. <laughs> Nailed it. But what's Bloodborne like? Okay. So, Bloodborne is less Dark Age inspired fantasy, and it's more dressed up as a sort of Victorian Gothic aesthetic. The story, which we talked a little bit about, is um, that. Uh, <laughs> I think Derek summed it up quite well uh, in terms of the blood transfusion sort of entering you into the sort of hallucinatory dream uh, in which you're kind of going through this town 
Uh, and this town discovered the magic or the, the power of this blood transfusion, the ability for using this technique of blood transfusion to cure all ails and leads to various other medical and technological advancements. But it has also led to those people who used it becoming monstrous beings that you know have to slay. Um, so that's the kind of light-ish beginning opening premise of that story. And you're a hunter who has to yes. kill these monsters in this night. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the hunters are the sort of heroes protagonists of the Bloodborne yeah. world. Um, the big difference gameplay-wise is that Bloodborne is very, very melee-focused. Uh, Dark Souls, interestingly enough, is somewhat forgiving in that it allows you to cheat. Uh, in my first build in Demon Souls, uh, I actually had a mage powerful or mage capable character that had a wand and could cast some spells, but also was able to do some sword damage. And that meant that if I ever approached something, for example, uh, we were talking a little earlier about there's this big dragon that is kind of the jump scare, jump out of the way, didn't see it coming, and he basically wrecks your day the first time you see him. In Demon Souls. Uh, in Demon Souls, yes. Uh, and I was able to defeat him not by going toe-to-toe with him, but by standing on a tower and casting a spell as he flew by, and the <laughs> game just didn't say, hmm, this dragon should redirect and wreck your stuff because you're just on top of a tower. Uh, and slowly but surely, waiting for my magic to heal back up to 100% and then just keeping at it, eventually that dragon died. Uh, See, I like that. <laughs> I like that thing. Kyle's down for the cheeses. <laughs> yes. He is not lactose intolerant. <laughs> Bloodborne does not let you use uh, ranged combat in that way. There is ranged combat. It's not magic. It is in the form of uh, firearms and bullets, Gun. so to speak. Uh but that, uh, those firearms are not meant for damage so much as they are meant to uh, use the stagger mechanic, whereby using a firearm, shooting somebody with a bullet, in, or shooting an enemy with a bullet in the middle of their attack animation causes them to stagger. And there's this kind of beautiful sound. It kind of makes a kind of horror shriek sound on the violin yeah. when it happens. And then you've got a very small window before the enemy gains their posture to perform what is called a visceral attack, where the hunter takes their arm, thrusts it into the enemy up to their elbow, digs in, pulls out what we assume is either more blood, maybe an organ. Just a bunch of goop. A lot of red goo. It's a, a very goop. graphic M-rated game. Visceral makes sense in this yeah. instance. Yes. In yeah. the viscera. Yeah. Yes, uh, and it does massively more damage than your ordinary attack. Yeah. Beating most of the bosses, I would say, is probably a ma- uh, matter of getting down how to uh, trigger the stagger and then going in for the visceral attack. Uh, I think that was definitely the way to get the most damage out of the Cleric Beast and Father Gascoigne. I imagine it'd probably be uh, with other bosses as well. The other thing that is different about Bloodborne is that it has a regain mechanic where every time you take damage, there's a small window of time where if you attack immediately after that, you can regain some of the health that you lost and potentially even regain all the health that you lost if you're fast enough and you have enough stamina to maintain the attack. So it encourages a more like aggressive, brutal yes. style of play that focused on hurting the people that just hurt you rather than like calculated, remove yourself from combat, try to, yeah. Right. Uh, and all the Souls games sort of involve a level of sort of dancing around every enemy as you fight them. Uh, I think Bloodborne wants you to as much to dance and look for the opening, but also look for the moment where uh, you can go on the aggressor, of uh, the aggressive and you know, take advantage of your opponents. Uh, so I think we all had very different ways of relating to this game. Let us reflect. Yeah, I mean, I didn't like it that much. Tell, I want to I know, what, what did you not like about it? 
Yeah, I mean, I kind of suspected that I wouldn't like it that much because, like, I mean, I've never played a, a Souls game before or a, a, a From Software game before. Um, but, like, all the descriptions that I had gotten of the games, I was like, this doesn't seem like the game for me, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, huh. When I've been reflecting on why I didn't like it, I think there's two parts. One, I think I've become broken, like, as a human in the way that Full I stop. approach it. <laughs> yeah, just done. I mean, ditto. I mean, just like, the joke I was going to make was, like, I'm in academia. I don't need to experience more failure. <laughs> but Fair. <laughs> um, uh, I think, like, I, I, I've had a very – because the way I've been playing video games for the past couple of years has changed a lot with, like, my work schedule. Yeah. I now, like, almost exclusively play video games that I only dedicate, like – 60% of my attention to because that I'm also yeah, like sense. listening to podcasts because like I only have like a couple hours to do all to consume all of the media that I want to consume in right, a day right so like I approach video games in like I want to play this game it's fun I also want to be kind of doing something else and that's like a failing on my part um and so yeah that's not a failing I mean it's just a different way of approaching it's a different games. way so, of, yeah, different I think way. that's a big part of it and so by no means do I want to say that Bloodborne is a bad game like while playing it I was like I feel like I got it. I was like, yeah, if I like dedicated myself to this and yes. like, or not, you know, if I like really yeah. put in the time for this, I think it could be enjoyable. I think I would get a lot of, you know, uh, enjoyment from like taking down a boss that was particularly challenging of like kind of nailing the stagger move and the visceral attack, the dodge and, you know, hitting the guy with like your axe or your whip sword or whatever at the right time. Um, but I, I had a very real moment when I beat father gascoigne which was what we had kind of talked about and i was like i felt good you know i felt like yeah this is good and i was also like tight i'm not gonna do this anymore <laughs> like i put in the time and i'm like yeah i'm i'm done with this like the, yeah. the, the emotive investment to to get to that point yeah. I, I was i was just done so yeah. again i think it's a good game like objectively a well-designed game I, yeah. I i enjoy the kind of systems that are built into it um but it's just not a kyle game that's fair yeah that's totally valid and it just like there's contexts, even sometimes the same, like, work context. Like, we're all grad students. Terrell, I'm interested mm-hmm. to hear your perspective on this because I know it fit into your life in a very different way, even though you were also sort of, like, busy and crazy, lots of work and all that stuff. But, um, yeah. How do you feel about it, Derek? That's uh, – so it's really interesting. I So I had played Dark Souls 2 for the first time. So this is my first Souls game. I, I guess I, I played – um. The one on the Switch. The one that's not, like, actually Souls-like, but... Uh, Hollow? Hollow Knight. Yeah. I played Hollow Knight a while ago, or maybe just in 2018, I think it was, that I played it. I can't remember Sounds when I played right. it. Sounds about right. Yeah, because yeah, I, I think, think it was time. one of the greatest... Uh, yeah. Or one of the yeah. top games Game of, of the year. Time is a flat circle, nothing matters. That's right, yeah, basically. <laughs> nothing happens before anything else or after <laughs> it. Um, so I played that one, and then I played Dark Souls 2 this past summer, because I was like, okay, I want to just try it. Like, this is a big cultural reference point in games i should be at least vaguely familiar with it and i kind of got it like i got sucked into that one for maybe 30 hours i think i got like through a bunch of bosses um uh so this was not bloodborne was not my first um souls game but it did uh remind me of why i stopped playing dark souls 2 which is that i i also get really frustrated with these games too um I think I have a, a, a weirdly high tolerance for frustration in games. And what's interesting, and we'll get to this when we talk about Jewel, but um, insofar as, like, there's a question of putting in, uh, just putting a certain amount of time in, doing labor to learn the game, putting work in, 
having developing a skill of playing and also just the chance aspect. One thing that that is very clear to me in contrast to other quote hard games that I've played, Bloodborne, Dark Souls, chance is almost like not a thing. Yeah. Like chance is like it's it's the almost it almost plays no factor in these games. Yeah. There's a little bit of chance in like maybe how a certain <clears throat> enemy will deploy a certain attack or like a hitbox or an angle that they'll come at you but that's just like the chance involved in 3d spaces where ai come towards your player character and that's like every game that's like nothing particularly essential to the core design of dark souls and i think actually something that i think we'll come back to a lot is that like you know uh the elimination of chance is is essential to the design of these Mm -hmm. games and is part of why people develop this certain kind of relationships to these games and we'll talk about a couple of those relationships um, later. Um, so I have a I have a high tolerance for 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 difficulty, frustration, and also for randomness. Um, so I was like ready. I was like I always felt like I might like these games, but had never given them a shot. And I do kind of like them, but there's actually something about the lack of chance that I think I don't like <laughs> uh, because like. If there's a little chance, then there's the chance that I might accidentally win sometime, which I rely on, like Battle Royale as Mm -hmm. a genre, like the 100 or 60 characters, player characters, multiplayer game, everyone drops, gets random loot, you know, has encounters with different players at random times. Fortnite, PUBG. Random circles that force you towards random parts of the map. Sometimes you just get lucky and you win and you're like, Oh hell yes! I fucking finally pulled it off. <laughs> like I finally fucking won. Um, and like, I don't know what it says. I don't know if it really says anything in particular about me. I want to argue it doesn't say much necessarily, but it could say something about me. But I just like that's the kind of game that I like. I enjoy. Like I really come back to those games a lot. And those games I have to. Those are the kinds of games that I give all my attention to, right? The way Bloodborne absorbs your attention, the way you were talking about it, Kyle, where like it's not like the games you like to play where you can yeah. do 60%. It's yeah. not a recuperative, relaxing game. Again, curious to hear about Terrell's perspective I mean, there is on just this. really quick to just invert yeah. what you were please, saying about please. the good luck. Like, so, <laughs> I mean, necessarily the next step then would be if you lose, you can blame bad luck. Oh, yeah. And oh, that's, absolutely. And yeah, that's why Bloodborne is so punishing. Jewel, yes. Jewel, Jewel yeah, exactly. quotes that as the paradox. It's a, you know... If you win, yeah, look at this thing I did. If you lost, <laughs> it's just a game. Who cares? Um, like, yeah, it was right. RNG. You know, I, I didn't desert. But Bloodborne is like, no, you goofed. Like, you should have dodged and you didn't dodge in time. And I'm like, well, okay, I'm going to go play Civ. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go nuke people and Civ. It's fun. Jerks. Yeah. It's Sorry, fun. I, I, I do that. feel like the structure of Civ and Bloodborne are similar in a certain sense because you know the algorithms of Civ well. Yeah. You've learned them. You know how characters will behave to yeah. certain responses. It's just like a little less punishing, I think, right? Like it's a little bit more chill. It's a little bit going to let you tune out a little bit more yeah. than I think. And I think some high-level Bloodborne well, players will get to that level. I mean, I don't even know if it's all that high-level because one of the things that is totally a part of the loop of this game is going through areas that you've gone before to farm resources, yeah, or yeah. when I say resources, really just bullets and um, the vials, vials that yeah. you the can use to sort of heal yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's a certain point in time where you are a combination of both high powered enough and also know the game enough where you know, oh, there's a guy coming around the corner. I'm gonna back up, let him do that, and stab. 
you're done. Uh, where you can begin to start to negotiate and you've got the powers to do the crowd control uh, effectively and yeah. you sort of know, okay, if I go here, there's this guy in the corner who's going to shoot me. I'm going to take care of him. Then I'm going to wrap around, take care of these guys. Then I'm going to type in and sort of like, you know, do the dance to kind of lure some of these guys off, pulsing them off. And then, you know, when you get that down to that sort of science, I think it functions similar to the way that something like Civ or uh, a separate game for me, the trading card game, where yeah. you've got it yeah. down to that level of a science and it's just like... Yeah. I can function on whatever, not super high, right. but I'm super, um, super so no, involved and know enough of this. And yeah. eventually, the game wants to push you to the point where you can kind of get a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just to wrap up my thoughts, like it's a hard game. I've played other hard games that are different than it, and this one felt different to me because of the lack of chance. I think mm-hmm. that's to me what you know. I've had the same affective experience with other games where there was more chance. Uh, but that that question of chance seems to me the the, the key difference. Right. I want to toss it to Terrell because I'm really curious. Oh, do you have a do you have a follow up? One thing I just want to put out on the question of chance, yes. and uh, maybe this gets cut, maybe it doesn't. The chance thing that you're saying now yeah. makes me realize why Sekiro is actually pretty interesting because Sekiro does something slightly different mm. um, with the death mechanic. It lets you. When you die, and this is where the Shadows Die Twice piece comes in, mm. you have the option of resurrecting on the spot. Oh. And if you resurrect on the spot, that then um, that then is like, okay, you're good. Whatever. Um, if you don't choose to resurrect on the spot, you go back to the beginning. And I can't remember whether there's a penalty for losing anything or not, but if you die the second time before you're able to pick up the sort of um, object that lets you recuperate the sort of death piece, then you lose half of your souls. Got it. However, there is a number that's generated through the game where ever so percentage of your deaths, I think it's like generally set to be like 30 or something like that. Yeah. If you die the second time, you don't lose any souls or you don't lose any of the in-game currency. Oh, it's just like randomly. Right. So it's like whatever that number is, that translates into a percentage. Yeah. And that that number of percentage of times that you die, you don't lose anything. The thing that complicates this. Is that me, number a stat in your skills? Or is that a number you can change? I, I, or is I, that a variable that people found through playing? I vaguely remember. It's, it's a stat. It's okay. a number that is on the screen. I don't know whether you can up- – I have a vague memory that you can upgrade it. Okay. Um, I bounced off this game hard for this reason. Oh, yeah. There is a thing in the game called Dragon Rot. Uh-huh. And what Dragon Rot is is it accumulates every time that you die – and after you've accumulated so many different deaths, uh, the dragon rot then takes hold of a character. And the character in the game, one of the NPCs, becomes ill. That then decreases this value that you have as to whether or not you can come back without losing any souls. The problem with that for me is that, to be honest, despite the fact that there's a possibility that you lose your souls and you don't get them back... Bloodborne, the Soul series, have never cared how often that you die. Yeah, the they don't point punish is you that, for that you yeah. know, the first time I played this game, um, I was, as I mentioned before, uh, I played this game on my, I guess that would have been my 28th birthday. Yep, uh, I started playing it because uh, I had played Demon Souls prior um, when I was in my master's program, and um, I had kind of turned to Bloodborne because life was hard. <laughs> Um, grad school was kicking me in the teeth. Fair. Um, a number of interpersonal things, both in academia and out of academia, were not going well. And I was just like, man, I I need something. 
to like give me a, a way of thinking to get through life and I will pour myself into Bloodborne as a way to do that. Um, <laughs> don't know what that says about me, but I'm thinking, you know, yeah, I've been through Demon Souls. Um, I did play Scholars of the Last Sin, uh, or the first Sin, I think so it's Dark, called. So Dark Souls 2, that's a the re-release of yeah, Dark Souls 2? Game of the Year Game edition, of the year something edition. Like That's that. the one I played, actually. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, I started playing that, but something interesting had happened when I was playing that version was that I realized like this game is going to be mean to me. I'm not going to let it. I'm not going to go down that corridor with that big, mean, scary monster. He's going to be mean to me. I know better, which I realize now something Bloodborne kind of taught me is like, you can't play the game that way. You yeah. have to let it teach you mm-hmm. uh, by failing. And, you know, I've been kind of hopping in and out of the game for the past two and a half years. And I've gotten to a point where, you know, I don't know if I said this already, but the game triggers the meme cowabunga it is yeah like there are moments where it's like huh if i go press this quarter i'm probably gonna fight this boss and there's a part of me that's like oh, a boss it's gonna suck it's gonna be hard and then there's just like you know look you can deal with it and then i start fighting the boss and i'm like oh i could stagger you oh you're done punk and it's like maybe you'll do some damage <laughs> on me it's like Guess what? I've been running through this game for like 20,000 times. I got 20 blood vials, dude. <laughs> you know, I'm healing myself, and I'm like, you know, I'm going to take some damage and get some bullets to stagger your behind. I'm going to put my elbow all the way into your gut. <laughs> and then just that feeling when the sign comes up on the screen, because I forget exactly, I should have wrote this down, what happens in the Dark Souls series, but whenever you defeat an enemy or defeat a boss in Bloodborne, Prey Slaughtered appears yeah. on the screen. It's something about Prey Slaughtered, watching the number of blood <laughs> echoes just like shoot through the roof and just knowing I did that shit. Yeah. Is like. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. I think there is something cool in the game too, in that the first boss, the cleric beast, is like an eldritch horror of yeah. insane proportions. And like, you know, obviously it's it's very, they're very hard. It is very hard to kill. Um, but like, it is po- it's possible and like not. Mm-hmm the hardest thing and I think Father Gascoigne is harder Definitely. like as a boss even Definitely. though he's just like a dude who does turn into an Eldritch Horror at some right. point which I think all the bosses do but well, like, I would guess yeah <laughs> that like the, your first boss is like you're on a bridge and this is giant like five story tall tentacle, monster with a giant tentacle arm limbs. and you're like oh cool my life's over I'm gonna yeah. go yeah good night yeah this looks like the final boss of a different of, game yeah of every other <laughs> yeah, game yeah, like, yeah. this yeah. is a way more badass version of the final boss from every other game yeah, ever yeah. and you beat him and you're like all right, okay. like, let's, we're in this now. So I, like, guess I guess that was the beginning, yeah. man. All right. I think that is, like, there's, like, a, a level of reward to that. Like, if the first boss was yeah. Father Gascoigne, you're like, oh, it's, it's like, a dude. Like, okay, cool. Like, it's me. Like, I fought the other me. If I went bad, got it. Great. Let's keep going. But, like, yeah, this giant, you know, the eldritch monstrosity. Can I make a suggestion? Can we jump to Hudson? Because I think it's so relevant yeah. right now. Yeah, go ahead. That, is that cool? Yeah. Sure. Um, do you want, should I jump us? Yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, that's really interesting because, uh, this is basically the, the, the experience, I think, what we're talking around, this idea of, like, working really hard and, like, having this really satisfying payoff, which is the other side of the, like, deep <laughs> failure, sadness, anger, frustration coin of this game. Um, so in Hudson's essay, it's, again, that's Terrell mentioned at the top of the episode called In Bloodborne's Brutal World, I Found Myself. Um, Hudson's basically describing how she like basically got over like she 
she used Bloodborne to sort of work through a kind of person. She describes it this way of working through a sort of personality trait about herself that she recognizes as like, I am the kind of person to just give myself every single challenge in life and I won't stop until I have <laughs> overcome the thing or it has undone me. And she she has a sort of like complicated relationship with that personality trait. She's like, it's really good, but it's also terrible. Like she's clearly like working through it in this piece. Um, but uh, but but in this essay, she's basically talking about how she felt like she learned the boundaries of like what is good striving and effort and like what is like kind of masochistic, like dead end kind of down the drain, like down into the dark void. Yeah. Throwing away your efforts kind of uh, uh, struggle. And, and I think the mechanical aspects of Bloodborne are that thing, right? She has a line, right. a really kind of like powerful line that. I'm sure it's in here somewhere where she, you know, says something on the lines of like, you know, in other games, like you acquire stuff and that's kind of like, you know, the character becomes better. But in Bloodborne, you become better. Like, right. like you, you know, you beat bosses not because you get better items and stuff, although that, that is part of the game. You know, there are RPG elements, but like you beat bosses because you understand the mechanics. You, the human, understand the mechanics of the You've game. You've internalized better. something. Yeah. Yeah. So you become the ultimate weapon. That's right. <laughs> I mean, she probably says almost exactly that. I, I think I, that's right, yeah. Yeah, basically. Um, Terrell, I, I was curious. You you picked this essay for us. Mm -hmm. How do you see it, and and what do you make of her her understanding of the game? How does that resonate or, or, or you know, bounce off of how you feel about the game? Right. So um, this essay was published on... Um, the platform that was relaunched by um, Hudson and Lee Alexander um, some time ago uh, called Offworld. And the point of that, um, that platform was to try and um, project, amplify, uh, marginalize and underrepresented voices in video game studies and video games criticism. Um, so thinking women, uh, people of color, uh, LGBTQ voices, etc. And the thing that sort of appealed to me was about it when um, I started playing Bloodborne some time ago was, one, it was an essay about Bloodborne. Uh, and I pre-ordered this, I think, through the Kickstarter. Uh, it was a um, collection of some of the better uh, essays that have been uh, published on the platform for some time. And it's, uh, oh, well, there's you know Bloodborne's in here, so let me check that out. And um, thinking about sort of the things that she had to say and the way in which she points to a really important context for thinking about Bloodborne, which is that in March of 2015, it sort of comes on the heels of Gamergate. Yeah. And one of the things that she sort of makes clear, or sort of talks about this a little bit, I don't think she references the context of Gamergate explicitly, but she does mention about how, in many ways, as she's seeking challenges, one of the challenges that is, you know, sort of central to her life is writing in game studies, a male-dominated industry, uh, or games criticism, I should say, uh, games media, as a woman, and that there's a lot of sort of tests. Um, she actually kind of discusses the yeah. particulars of it um, quite well. I'm trying to find the language here: uh, online abuse, diminishing returns, endless credibility contents. The sense that no matter how much of myself I gave, it's her writing, uh, it would never be a, it would never be enough. Um, that sort of brief summary of the kind of experience of writing in that context, and. The thing that resonates with me in thinking about um, Bloodborne in this context is that there's something about facing the beast, right? And the beast in this case being 
uh, patriarchy as it manifests in a particular industry or manifests in a particular uh, set of practices online. Uh, but and similar to the way that one engages Bloodborne, honing yourself as someone who can face that, mm-hmm. someone who can um, either endure that or take that on. Uh, and that metaphor and all the things that it sort of entails therein, I think are particularly fruitful and interesting to talk through. Um, I had a few thoughts that we can maybe uh, indulge or explore there. Yeah, hit us with them. So at one point she actually describes it as a kind of a sense of bravado uh, that she experiences in playing Bloodborne. um, And it's sort of adopted by those who are, are facing oppression and thinking about a parallel between the difficulty of Bloodborne and the difficulty of being a woman or another marginalized voice in games criticism. And I'm thinking about a number of different themes uh, that come up in my studies outside of video games, um, particularly uh, in black studies, thinking about double consciousness or the concept of fugitivity or the metaphor or the famous line from Audre Lorde, uh, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. seems that she's almost kind of inverting that to a certain degree, Mm -hmm. that there's something about engaging with these tools or engaging in these spaces uh, sort of flips those things on their head. Yeah. Or it gives you the ability to sort of engage back or speak back in a particular way, which in a number of ways, you know, thinking about the enterprise of scholarship from the margins, it's always sort of a practice of kind of using those tools and uh, towards a different end. Yeah. Um, and I was just curious as to, you know, thinking about that, uh, that approach uh, to oppression or that approach to um, engaging in spaces that have some type of systemic or structural problematic what you all made of that or thinking about bloodborne as a metaphor therein is that wholly productive or maybe just a little too masochistic uh, against what <laughs> Hudson is saying um i i mean this is this is one of the things i love about this essay and <clears throat> thank you for foregrounding again the the context in which she wrote it because it is very much it's. I mean, she, I don't think she mentions Gamergate at all, Mm-mm. but it is definitely like on her mind. Like she talks about like being online, maintaining an online presence, having to push back against male criticism, and like this is like obviously all of these things are tactics, and much worse tactics came out of the Gamergate sort of situation. Um, so I, I I really appreciate that metaphorical reading uh, of the game and of her working through not just a personality trait, but also something broader than that, too. The other thing I really like about this um, essay, and maybe this is just me sort of interpreting, I don't know if this is sort of so obvious in the text, is that it's sort of an embrace of an activity playing games uh, as something that is, you know, there, there's no, um, there's a, I think there's, let me start over again. One thing that I think is at tension in that metaphorical reading of this essay as like working through the trauma of, of like a con- contemporary contextual cultural event is that I feel like the essay kind of proceeds in a, in, in a somewhat similar narrative about Bloodborne as the sort of get good narrative about the game. I, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I'm just throwing this out here, but... Basically, her final the point that I that I got from her essay was that she came to this game and it was fair. It was fair in the absolute. That's one of the 
the quotes from the mm-hmm. from the text. It's fair in the absolute because it, it shows you exactly what it wants you to do. It's not going to have any chance or randomness. All you have to do is do it enough and learn and pay attention and practice, and you will get better, right? You will eventually learn what you're supposed to do, or you'll get stuck for a while. <laughs> that's actually been, that's much more my, I, I felt like I had a lot of moments in this game where I was playing and not learning and not getting better, where I was like uselessly kind of wasting my own time. D- dumping your time away. Yeah, yeah, and like, so So this is, that's another thing that like sort of anti-resonates, is dissonant maybe with her <laughs> No, I think anti-resonates. And maybe anti- we could sum that point up with just, you know, one quick phrase. Fuck Axe, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the Axe, dude. The Axe troll, dude. Yeah. He's the worst. Um, so so, uh, so she, she sees this thing as fair in the absolute. It's hard but fair, right? Mm-hmm. And ultimately what she got out of this experience was she put in the time and she succeeded. And that to me is a productive narrative. It's a narrative that says like um, it's fundamentally about like putting time in and getting something out. Mm-hmm. And like... I think it's just like important to flag that as a kind of narrative. It's also about a bootstrapping narrative, more or less. Yeah, sure. I think so. I mean, and like if you just try hard enough, right? If you and like Horatio Alger. Yeah. And like yeah. you know, I think there are, I think people need to write certain essays at certain times in their life for various reasons, right? Like I don't, I don't want to blow this up and say like, and therefore the metaphorical reading of this or the contextual reading of this is sort of invalidated because this is just sort of like a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of narrative. That's not, that's not really the point I want to make. But the, the structure of her argument is basically like, I put in the time and I got better. And I'm really curious if that's how you guys would describe your time with this game. Because yeah. it's not really how I would describe my time with it. I mean, I like how she couches it all in kind of like her own kind of like personal emotional stakes. Yes. Right, and how putting time into things for her in a lot of scenarios and you know and whenever this was written but you know in 2015 yeah just seemed like a waste and that this was one of the few places that she was putting in time and seeing actual rewards you know but right yeah i would say i did not have a similar experience of putting in time and feeling actual rewards but yeah. you know teach their own right like, yeah you know, absolutely it's cool for her. right yeah. right right yeah. um terrell i i do want to hear if does this does this strike you does that does the narrative that she presents of her progression through this game resonate with your experience? It does. Um, and there are sort of two branching thoughts that I have about it. Um, one is, I guess, that, you know, you're totally correct that there is something of a bootstrapping, something of a, um, uh, you know, productive, you know, put this in, you'll get something back out of it. The other thought that I had about this, um, this is something else that I wanted to discuss, is that there's something about the way that the game couches the hunter uh, and the way in which the hunter operates uh, and the way it's coded within the space. I mean, again, sort of talked about the sort of Victorian elements uh, surrounding the game. The hunter kind of moves around in this sort of genteel garb, kind of has this kind of long flowing coat, a hat that looks, you know, a little triangle hat on top and yeah it's a style it's a good look it's a strong look it is it is um but juxtapose that with the rather crude weapons uh i mean there's like an axe that literally looks like it's a big um, meat cleaver yeah big meat cleaver uh and has this little flip function almost like it's a a a razor blade (laughs) yeah 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 like 
Are you talking about the, the, the weapons that the enemies have or that you have? That you have. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, sorry, um, please. And, and, you know, more down to this genteel thing, there's a weapon that's a cane that then yeah. yes. breaks into a studded right. Yeah. yeah, 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 which is pretty sick. <laughs> it's, it's sick, but it's also, it's doing this thing that's really interesting and kind of contrary to the sort of Victorian European setting uh, that the game takes place, but something that Toni Morrison talks about in one of her books, Playing in the Dark, which she thinks about the new world context and the sort of new man of the American frontier who is able to sort of capture, uh, who is able to sort of maintain all the kind of autonomy and dignity that we assume um, with a citizen, a human being, a mental member of society, but also has to be a little rugged because he has to be able to tame the wilderness. And along with that, the code that she reads, and something that somewhat obscures the settler colonial context, that ability to tame the wilderness of the um, unclaimed land of the United States that was clearly claimed. Quotes around all right. that. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> clearly there were people there. Um, and part of the thing that he had to tame. Uh, but that also is the context of uh, taming or breaking the slave, the African um body that was doing the labor on that land that he was sort of claiming for himself even though um other people were clearly there but um the way in which that code can be read uh fast forward a couple of centuries just a couple (laughs) um into something like uh police or military rhetoric thinking about the way that the thin blue line uh is meant to protect society from two uh the black horrors the horrors you know and that sort of symbol or you know coded as black uh, the way in which Bloodborne seems to sort of distill all of those aesthetics and all those narratives in a way that uh, I think they're just as applicable to almost every game that has a slightly action or even slightly action-oriented genre. So mm-hmm. I'm thinking that to a certain degree we could say the same thing about Link, um, that Link is doing that same taming of uh, these sort of broken monstrosities that threaten society uh, by at once being brave, but also being powerful and able to meet force with force, like Mm. half smarts, half courage, half force. That's three halves. Link is (laughs) 1.5 human being. Um, Also true with like, I think Samus and Aloy to a certain degree in their respective games and definitely true Kratos. Um, In God of War. Right. Uh, And just thinking about the way that that prey slaughtered screen. Yeah. Yeah. Really kind of, um, is emblematic of that. Uh, and I know this is slightly different from the point that you're making, no, Derek, but I think that they they complement each mm-hmm. other so well that mm-hmm. in a lot of ways we could read the discourse uh, of the mechanics and the games and the way that they are presented in Bloodborne as a metaphor for these discourses overall. Mm-hmm. The thing that I would throw maybe um, back against that, or one of the things I would maybe read sort of back with the grain or against the grain in a more holistic interpretation is that if there is work that is in Bloodborne that is supposed to be productive, that is supposed to sort of redeem, you know, the struggle is redeemed through the profit of progress or whatever, I think that there's something about reading those two experiences of being a woman in a male-dominated industry and playing this game is that you're doing that work no matter what, right? You're already doing that work. The question is, is that a labor of, you know, becoming a cog in the machine are you working this hard just to become one of the monsters that's mm. sort of moving in the game space yeah or yeah. are you becoming hard this, this hard you know form of life yeah. to be able to take on those back and forth mm. and so it's like what kind of narrative are you telling yourself is it a question of yeah. identification with these larger schemes or is it a question of counter identification yeah. this is using a framework mm. that um jose munoz breaks down in a number of different yeah. ways um and i guess to a certain degree, 
to the extent that Bloodborne and FromSoft and the community surrounding these games certainly have a kind of get good mentality, mm. but she also points to the fact that there's a social media discourse, and it's something that's actually rather interesting about you know playing these games is that if you go to the right places, and the right places are not hard to find, believe it or not, people aren't like, you suck, get good. Because like if you're being honest, this game kicks everybody in yeah. the teeth. I don't think anybody's like preternaturally good at a no Souls game. No one picks game. it up and is immediately killing every boss. Right, no problems yeah. and yeah. if you are, like I said you know, somewhat before in talking about Sekiro, the game doesn't really give you a way to measure that. There's no like, here's your speed run trophy, yeah. and there's no like, you beat this boss on the first try, like, you know, badge. Like, not concerned about that stuff at all. Yeah. Right. Um, and for that reason, the game is somewhat like, get good is like, you know, so you beat this boss without much challenge. Mm-hmm. there's no representation of that other than you being like, I beat this boss on the first yeah. try. Mm-hmm. Cool. Which which <laughs> is cool, and that's one of the cool things about this game is that right. you eventually have that experience where it's like, yeah, I struggled on the first couple of bosses. This guy, first yeah. shot. Yeah. And yeah. that feels good. I, yeah. did, I did watch a 34-minute speed run of Bloodborne. Oh, shit. <laughs> which is like vastly, I mean, there were some like cheats and like skipping bosses yeah. and stuff, but not cheats, I guess, uh, but... Yeah, very like re, like made me feel like oh okay cool <laughs> like okay, this guy. I just... have seen this thing rot low yeah. before me. <laughs> Look at the poor algorithm writhing on the floor before this mighty streamer. Um, can I, I want to jump off of something that that Thrill was talking about, which is like the hardening. So hardening to become to replicate the system which perpetuates hardness, or hardening to resist that system, is one sort of. Um, one sort of way of interpreting this game or, or reacting to the conditions that it might be a metaphor for. <laughs> um, at, at the other thing, the other thing that I had in my mind that I should put on the table here uh, in talking about the productivity narrative that I think is a little bit latent in, in Hudson's uh, description of her experience with the game is um, Halberstam. So uh, we did not actually read any of Jack Halberstam's, uh, I mean, the, the, text that I have in mind is the, I think it's called The Art of Queer Failure. Is that what it's called? Uh, the Queer Art of Failure is the book. The Queer Art of Failure is the book that I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I did sort of, uh, so we did sort of uh, gloss through a, a really interesting interview in the um, Queer Game Studies edited edition. Uh, By Bonnie Ruberg and Adrian Shaw. Beautiful, thank you. Um, there's a really interesting uh, interview, and maybe this is also a bridge to Jewel, between uh, Halberstam and Jewel talking about failure, because they both wrote books about failure, but as the as Bonnie Rubrick sets up in the introduction of this uh, chapter, it's like they don't cite each other, or you know, Halberstam is not talking about games, and actually Halberstam has an essay in there, which is also really good and worth reading. Um, but uh, Halberstam makes the point in this sort of interview at a conference. So uh, the quote... The quote from this text is, um, Halberstam is talking about Jules' book, actually. And uh, Halberstam says, So my big claim is that someone might actually want to fail because they're so dissatisfied with a particular social context. Um, Take, they give the example, the social context of capitalism, for example. Um, This idea of, of, of thinking of failure as something that you could desire Mm. Seems to me such a like as an as a as a different model for interpreting from the hardness model of accepting failure. When I think about the the whole a broader not even the metaphorical uh, a metaphorical reading of the game specifically Bloodborne, but like just the activity of spending time on a game like Bloodborne, 
I think another way to think about it is just it's a loss. Like it's not productive in a lot of senses, right? Like there are ways in which maybe FromSoft gets data from you and maybe you produce some social media or forum posts or whatever stuff that other people consume that are vaguely some sort of productive thing as well. But just the activity of sitting down and playing this sort of single player experience where where you are giving yourself arbitrary challenges in an environment that is not transferable to any other environment, right? There's no lesson you learn or skill you gain or work on yourself that you do in the game that isn't also only bound to the context of the game. So I, I, I would I would love for us to also have another narrative about Dark Souls where it's like, this game is actually all about failure and loss. It's loss of time. You're going to lose things all the time. You're going to lose souls. You're going to lose blood echoes. Um, and let's like embrace that as like a way of being. And this is like the Halberstam's whole point with uh, mm -hmm. um, their entire book um, is is like thinking about the possible other forms of life and other ways of being and interpreting and understanding things when we embrace failure and and we don't come up with some sort of productive takeaway from the mm. thing. It could be that maybe sometimes we just need to go and waste time and fail and lose time in a game like Dark Souls, which or Bloodborne, which will just sort of wrap us up in some pleasures. Um, and that, like maybe like on the long term, that leads to something that we just, you know, Halberstam says, like we just don't have lots of good language for this negative. It's only negative mm. language for the 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 experiencing activity of failure and loss. Um, so you know, trying to imagine uh, modes of being that embrace failure, which is so core to to blood bloodborne would be like i think another interesting ideological narrative framework for understanding one's own experience of playing bloodborne mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. instead of get good just like be bad you know <laughs> <laughs> i i did pitch that in advance <laughs> but like you know or just i think terrell's uh, addended it you know just be just be, yeah. you know? Because, like, just be in the space of the game and, like, you're going to lose and that's okay. And just, like, finding a way, like, especially in the game context, like, losing, Halberson quotes, there's another quote from this essay, what would a game look like that allows you to fail without without eliminating you, right? Because mm -hmm. failure in a lot of other contexts outside of games might eliminate you from life, right? Um, <laughs> like, in well a, in a, you know, like, if you fail to get a job, if you fail to pass in a certain place as a certain kind of person you can die like for real <laughs> yeah. um so what is the what is the opportunity that we have in games where like you can fail without without being eliminated that's that's a really productive and interesting idea for me mm -hmm. and i'm gonna stop now because that's all i have to say but um hopefully that that sort of bounces back off of some something you you were saying to yeah yeah so that interview with Julian Halberstam is really interesting. Um, it's sort of juxtaposing uh, the art of failure written by Jewel versus the queer art of failure by Halberstam. Um, insofar as people have talked about um, Bloodborne and Souls games as being more akin to failure in those games being akin to Mr. Miyagi or Pai Mei from... Um, the Kill Bill series, uh, as a sort of way of becoming stronger, becoming better, uh, versus sort of the kind of accepting yourself as a broken toy, uh, as a route to new modes of value and world building, I think implicit in, um, in Halberstam. And I think that to a certain degree, 
there's a way in which critical discourse, if we're thinking about this extended parallel or this extended metaphor between games um, and social or political um, orientation, could use both, right? And that wrestling with both is important. Um, that realizing that there's ways to think new about new values, but there's also the sort of need to uh, protect, to sustain, to exist another day um, and to carry on in that particular context. And that uh, thinking about uh, another voice in queer theory that we've brought in for a number of times, uh, Eve Sedgwick, and uh, I think she's talks about this both in sort of her essay on paranoid versus reparative reading, but she also has an essay on Melanie Klein where she's going through some of the history of um, queer activism and some of the things in which it has to sort of wrestle that, it, you know, there's an immediate context that we have to struggle against, but then there's also this sort of need to kind of explore different ways of relating to society overall. Um, that sort of tension and what failure is used to or what we, why we orient ourselves to failure uh, is really important. Yeah. Does that transition to jewel pretty well? The, the full jewel? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, yeah. Because, I mean, this would be a good moment to bring him in because I think Jewel's understanding of failure is very different. Terrell, do you want to yeah. sort of give us that? Sure. Give us the rundown real quick. So shifting gears a little bit now to um, thinking about our last text for this, um, Jesper Jewel's The Art of Failure. This is the last of three books that he has written. Um, he'll probably write more. <laughs> the last. That yeah. sounded very cool. Really shot on that one. This the third will be of his three books. Final. Book. I will. I will mandate the uh, last of his books. The other two books are Half Real and Casual Revolution. Um, this book is something of a reflection. Well, it's a combination of a reflection on failure in games in a just general sense. Uh, he uses his experience playing the game Patapon to uh, ground a lot of this conversation. But it's also a very analytic a way of approaching um, the question of failure and trying to define what it means and engaging, I guess, conversations and aesthetics probably is the best way to sort of um, frame it. But approaching aesthetics from a very conceptual, very clear and distinct terminological sense um, and the kind of academic piece of this, we'd say that, yeah, it's funny because I took the time to stop and look what his academic training was. Yeah. I don't know what his bachelor's was in um and maybe he was in a place where there wasn't really a bachelor's degree because sometimes that's the case in european context yeah. i think he might have gotten a master's a like, master's yeah. in nordic literature yeah <laughs> yep and then a phd in game design but it's weird that he would come from nordic literature where i mean he his master's thesis was on games but i'd assume mm -hmm. that probably existed in something of a complete more continental approach yeah. to those things but somehow this whole piece is very like analytic philosophy, like proofs and premises and stuff like yes. that. Yeah. I, I, I am very excited to share something right now because it's something I actually gained from my year in Germany. <laughs> uh, oh, you mean that time you went into that warp hole and then yeah. they you? <laughs> and then you poured it out. And I think we played Hitman. Yeah, I think yeah. we played some Hitman. Okay, Y'all should watch that Hitman video. It's good. It's really good. It is good. I, we should do more I had of some those good sometimes. Goofs. Yeah. Um, so I, I had a chance to like. Uh, get a little involved in some of the like European game study stuff. And this is also just like, this is totally accessible through just texts that have been published. But the Nordic slash Scandinavian sort of school, if we want to call it, of game studies um, is one place where game studies kind of takes off. So there's actually like good PhD programs and colleges which have programs just for game studies. That's wild. Um, yeah, yeah, so this is like a big, this is a big... Um, 
Whereas Hope. we have to scrape and find like game studies in English Sneak or game studies wherever. in German. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I would love, I would love to come and do that at your university. Um, whoever might be listening. Uh, but, but, um, so, so Jules coming out of this context where like, he's one of the first, like his, his book Half-Life kind of a step sets a lot of the early terms of the game studies. So it's a key text. Um, that school of thinking is very formal or form oriented. They are very aesthetics and form oriented. Uh, this you see this in Arseth, you see this in Jewel, you see this in Eskalinen, you see this in a, a bunch of other uh, other uh, like German. Actually, a lot of German academics uh, will will write in this style as well. Um, often because they've gone and studied with those people um, in Copenhagen and another university. I can't remember them all off the top of my head at this moment, but um, form aesthetics, and they approach it in very schematic ways. Um, and this is something that I that maybe other people have are, are familiar with, and maybe we've even touched on this when we've touched on Arseth before. Their whole approach is very much about like carving out a theoretical space for games, um, and and I think that that informs a lot of their work. At the same time, so Jewel in this book, one one thing that I think is kind of interesting is that he's really intentionally placing this experience of failure in games in conversation with longer aesthetic traditions about tragedy mm -hmm. and about other forms of what we, what we might call in different contexts like negative affect and why we might enjoy that in certain aesthetic conditions, right? Um, sport. Sport, yeah. another thing. Uh, like why do we return to these tense, combative, comp comp competition-oriented things where, where bad <laughs> feelings can happen? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking about Stephen A. Smith and how much he's been just so upset that the uh, uh, the Knicks have been losing out on these like great opportunities to get players, uh, and how he just has this theatrical nature about him where he comes he's in and he's like, "Turn it off! I want the music! I want to talk to you today!" There's these great videos that sort of take his image and then make his voice really high pitched, but then make his face look like he's a baby, and then they just have this little like toddler in here yelling about, "I'm having a very bad day." Um, but how, like, one, it's funny because, like, toddler Stephen A. Smith, but also just, like, how theatrical he gets when he's oh doing God. it. It's like, yes, you're mad, but there's, like, a part of you that I think is also having fun. So yeah. You I know. know I love Nordic Games. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do a Stephen A. Smith impersonation. I don't think I, I don't think it's my place to do that. I don't that. think you got it. But, yeah. uh, but. Nordic studies! <laughs> you over there in Europe? <laughs> I think. With your game design programs? <laughs> and we over here. In a podcast studio <laughs> with headphones, we had to bring in ourselves. Well, I just take Derek's, but <laughs> true. Um, anyway, the point being, I think this is Jewel is is uh, typical of an approach yeah. to doing game studies, which is very formal, very structuralist, very maybe not structuralist, very analytical. Quick side note. Sorry, go ahead. No. Uh, at some point, we should totally like maybe over beers or maybe record this as a separate podcast yeah. have a conversation about this idea of games formalism because i've heard yeah. people say formalism yeah. over and over again in game studies and yeah. i'm thinking so close reading yeah but that's mm. like not what it like in english it means something i think a little bit different. Uh, so. oh yeah 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 because um, I, I did kind of like casually toss out like analytic or formal and yeah Derek said, but like in, in my head that is like a phil philosophical like from the discipline of philosophy right mm -hmm. um so in Jewel, I mean, if we're talking about like analytical and formal things, yeah. uh, he lays out um, kind of like a bunch of paradoxes, yes. right? Which for me, very, I mean, like very like even like Socratic, you yeah. know, philosophy. The like premise one, premise two, they are in contrast, so right. therefore whatever. And 
one of the kind of fundamental premises that he lays out is premise or the paradox is premise one failure is something we want to avoid yeah i mean we just complicated that with halberstam and everything but right. you know, <laughs> we probably all agree premise two games inevitably in- entail failure which yeah conclusion we play games despite the guarantee that we will experience failure so that's a paradox right like why do we keep pursuing games when we're gonna fail in them right right and it's interesting to lay it out like that like because it looks like the, the standard syllogism but then you got these two premises and then you would think intuitively oh so we don't want to play games yeah right no but we do want to play <laughs> but games. we do right right but the interesting thing about paradoxes and i remember having a conversation with my analytic philosophy professor in undergrad um about russell's paradox which is I think it's there's a book that contains all books, uh, a book a catalog that contains all catalogs that do not include themselves as mm-hmm. uh, an object in the catalog, mm-hmm. right? Does that book contain itself? Mm. Is it an entry in the book? And yeah. that's why God doesn't exist. <laughs> right. And so it's this like weird sort of Person way of thinking Russell. it through, I like, think, predicate yeah. or predication in a particular yeah. way. Yeah. But then the thing that she mentioned to me that I thought was very pointed and telling, a shout out to Sam, Samantha Emsweiler. Uh, funny how you invent this paradox so that you have something to talk about, and then you look super smart when you resolve the paradox that nobody cared about but you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a quote. Jewel, do, Jewel does with his book exactly what he says games do. It is like, this is what games do. They promise us that we can repair a personal inadequacy, an inadequacy that they produce in us in the first place. This is the logic that he uses for games, and I... I think as this is coming clear, we all have some questions about the analytic, the, the paradox. That That's just academia. It's, yeah, it's right. That's exactly right. I mean, a dissertation's not that different. It's, here's yeah. a question. I got 200 pages on that for you. Like here, here's, here's a question you probably have never thought about, will never have thought about, right. had I not produced this book. You're welcome. <laughs> You're, I solved it. Yeah, I solved the problem. And I good. brought y'all donuts. Yeah, yeah, and I got the tenure. Just so it doesn't sound like we're selling jewels short, yeah. I do think there are some frameworks as hesitant as I am about like struck like very um analytical and like list based <laughs> definitions of things. I think there are like Jewel touches on some really interesting yeah. uh, 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 concepts and ways of thinking about failure and and uh, things that feed into the experience of failure that would help us work through Bloodborne in some interesting ways. Yeah. Um, so a, yeah, go, no, 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 there's, you go there's for a part Kyle. that he he writes about where. Because he, he kind of has, has a lot of answers to this paradox, he does. right? He like runs right. through different forms and systems and lists and stuff. And the one that really struck me, um, like, because I think a lot of the things he's saying were like kind of intuitive. Like when you when he says it, you're like, yeah, oh yeah, of course, you know. But there's one that he kind of laid out, which is, you know, humans have a balance between short term and long term interests, right? And so you accept some failure in the short term for long term growth or whatever, whatever your desired um, kind of. Uh, goal is and so uh you know you can balance your you know happiness at succeeding in the short term versus your long-term character development in playing and failing (laughs) at bloodborne um and i thought that was kind of neat and so i I thought that was a good point um that's one of the reasons i like jewel the other reason is that the name jesper jewel is a really good superhero name it's a great name we haven't talked about period (laughs) just like what's his superpower you know don't say vaping I was going to say something smoke-related, but, like, I was like, no, one of you clowns is going to do something with Jewel. So um, the thing that really kind of grabbed me about Jewel and Bloodborne uh, was particularly the way that he's thinking about games as emotional gambling. Uh, 
And there's this weird sort of implication to the larger paradox where if games are trivial, they're just games. Who cares if you lose? But if you win, you feel like you earned something. And he goes through the, like, the large, complicated psychological reasons for why we split in those different ways. But the question of gambling also raises the sort of metaphor of going on tilt uh, that I think is very interesting in gambling games like poker and definitely of relevance to Bloodborne. Um, yeah. So, for example, and it's important to know that like Bloodborne is a game that demands your attention. You need to play it for a significant amount of time. Uh, but I do think that there's a certain point in time where you got to put the sticks down. Yes. Where it's just like after you just take a big loss, just like, okay, I'm going to be really, really, really hung up and I really, really want to get the souls back. But I should put the controller down, walk away, and just say, you know what? Those souls, yes, there's an enemy. So one thing that's different about Bloodborne versus Dark Souls is that uh, when you kill an enemy in Bloodborne or when an enemy kills you, rather than having your souls just drop in a place or your blood echoes drop in a place, sometimes they will be inside the enemy and their eyes will glow in a particular color. Uh, So rather than going after the glowy-eyed enemy that has your hours and hours of progress, just kind of say, you know what? Forget about it. It's gone. It could come back. It's not important right now. Yeah. We're just going to get more souls. Yeah. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Yeah. This is something, and just as a personal note, Kyle and I played a little bit of the game together, and I think this is the kind of game that if someone were to try and teach it in a class, I don't know, or do some sort of work with it as a group, this is the great game to pass the controller around, especially when someone, when you notice in yourself or in someone else, that they've hit that tilt moment, right? And, like, this is the great trade-off, the controller kind of a game, because that keeps you from getting in that tilt state and then, like, really taking it hard. Because I know the first time I played Dark Souls 2, there were many times where I played well beyond when I should have, and I was, like, angry, and I was like, I'm going to get this shit back, and it's just, it was a nope, bad scene. just got to let it go. It's over. I was not embracing loss. I was not embracing failure. I wanted to get my goddamn souls back. <laughs> and uh, it was it was a... It's a dangerous trap. Yeah. I, I like the idea of embracing failure personally. Right. Because I need to do that. <laughs> uh, as an academic, as a human on the job market. Right, right. You know, let's just really. So here's the thing. What does that look like? Does failure mean you end up living in a cardboard box? Or does yeah. failure mean that your CV doesn't look like your advisor's? Yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, is probably the way in which most graduate programs are structured that's a form of failure, yeah, but yeah. that means that there are other things uh, produced. I mean, you know, the interview that I did with um, uh, the VAT camp last year where I interviewed um, uh, Corey Duclos and Zoe uh, LeBlanc. LeBlanc, yes, um, history department. That's Hell yeah, you... man. Zoe's the best. She's the best of us. <laughs> <laughs> the best of us. Um, one of the things I sort of talked to them about was the way that DH, you know, and to bring DH into this conversation was like a kind of a form of failure for them because it detracted them. And, you know, mm. in some, you know, to pick up on Halberstam again, some forms of queer theory say that rather than going straight or growing up, you should grow crooked. You grow to the side. Um, so failure may not be not getting a job, but getting a job doing something slightly different right. in the yeah. academic space than what it is that your advisors are doing. Like there's another, I'll just, I'll just yeah. one last thing. Like um, in that, in that jewel and Halberstam conversation that's recorded in the book that we've been referencing, which we will put in the show notes, of course, the citation for this text. One of the audience members, I don't remember their name at this moment, says, uh, makes the point that, like, there's a very different kind of loss. There's a sort of loss over time, which is this one that says you can grow, you have time to grow sideways into some other form of life 
that you didn't know you were going to be growing into. And then there's the immediate loss, which is the one that Jewel seems to be focusing on in this text. It's like, mm. I lost this level. I lost, mm-hmm. honestly, I lost this specific job opportunity, right? Yeah. Like, I, lo- I didn't get that single job. Or I didn't, or I lost and gave up on this particular game. That's the short-term one. And, like, no one wants to embrace the short-term losses. Like, that's, like, another thing to put in here is, like, you don't want to (laughs) actually lose all forms of employment, but maybe the accrual of loss, and this is another thing that that Halberstam picks up, is this, like, how do losses add up and, you know, allow for new opportunities seems a thing that one could explore through a game like Bloodborne. Yeah. And I found that very powerful. Yeah. All right. Great. Seems like that will uh, do it for us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Scholars at Play, this time in real physical proximity to ourselves as we're recording, rather than distantly, digitally. Across the sea. It's so much better. It's so much better. It is nice. That's why we got to get a few more in before, before we part ways. Oh, don't say that, Derek. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) <laughs> too real too real too real uh anyway i'm gonna cut the sadness out yeah. yes please <laughs> uh, so the podcast is gonna be like eight minutes long it's gonna be like trail saying really smart stuff and you and me going like mm. Mm. and that's the whole podcast that's the whole podcast <laughs> uh we want to take some time to give uh thanks to the curb center for art enterprise public policy at vanderbilt university for providing support equipment, space, time, et cetera, especially Jay Clayton, uh, who's the director here, uh, the Haystack program for helping us jumpstart this project, uh, Visitor for use of their freely available music, which I'm not even sure what the title is. But you know, yeah. we've we, uh, I actually only brought one of the songs with me to Germany. The other one stayed on this computer here in the <laughs> studio. So I don't remember which is which anymore, but one of Visitor's songs. They're all great. They're all great. Check all of their music We've out. used at least... Two or three of their songs are yeah. great. Twitter.com slash Visager Music. Check it yes. out. So check it out. Uh, get that down. Uh, if you would like to, you know, get at us, you can do so uh, at Scholars at Play at, on, Twitter. on Twitter. On Twitter. Uh, you can also email us at Scholars at Play Podcast at gmail.com. Um, in the next couple of weeks or so, we might throw up some blog posts concerning Bloodborne and other reflections that we had. So always be sure to check out the blog. Scholarsatplay.net. Nailed it. Sweet. Uh, Kyle, where can people get at you? You can find me a Halloween spooky scary boy on Twitter <laughs> and on Instagram and on Snapchat. Uh, what other are there? LinkedIn. Halloween Frightman on academia.edu. I swear, if you do scholars that play stuff on LinkedIn, <laughs> wait, you haven't been ch- you haven't been checking my spot on LinkedIn. Can't believe you haven't been endorsing my skills as podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm at e underscore Kyle underscore Romero. I don't really post anything on Twitter other than like medium political takes. So if you want to hear that, you can keep myself medium warm on those hot takes. <laughs> Media on those videos. Your hot takes make me sick because they're undercooked. <laughs> Derek? Derek. <laughs> See, the fun thing about the physical space is when we were, like, digital, like, all the awkward pauses were like, oh, we're probably, like, you know, they're probably figuring stuff out. It's online. All the awkward pauses here are just us looking at each other like, oh, shit, are you going to go? Like, next? I'm just you holding wanna, the ball, like, looking go. at Derek. We're all like, just trying to be, it? like, really polite <laughs> to each other, and it's great. Huh. Through the ball. You can follow me. We should have some physical parts. Like, we throw we a should. ball. Yeah, the, this is something. Studio. This is a good idea. 
You no, follow- it's not. <laughs> you can follow me. There's more space in here now, so maybe we can make it work. You can follow me on Twitter at digital underscore Derek. Terrell, where can people We're find gonna you? We're going to break something. <laughs> at Black Socrates, baby. I wonder, if the, I wonder if the curb would be okay with that loss. <laughs> Probably not. No, I, I don't think they subscribe to so, the art of failure here. No, I don't think that would be. But there's long-term gains, Jay. Yeah, you know? come on. This, what oh, if geez. this might transform the space in unexpected yeah, we're ways? We're trying to fail in, like, in the social system yeah. that we don't that We, we don't, need uh, to break, support. This, break it down. I really hope he listens to the podcast. <laughs> so have I want to plug one quick thing, and I think I do think this episode will come out before November 8th, which is a very special live episode of Scholars That Play, the first, second one, actually. Uh, this, the, but the first one that will definitely end up on the feed, unfortunately. <laughs> R.I.P. that first one. Um, What's on? Is it not on the feed? I don't think it's... Oh, is it on the feed? Did it ever go up on the feed? No. Oh, I don't no. Think it okay, never mind. No, I don't Sorry. think it's on the feed. It, uh, it might. It could one day. Yep. It, might, it might someday. Uh, Learning at Play is a one-day symposium that uh, um, the CFT and Curb Center and the C- the comparative media program here and a bunch of other cool sponsors are sponsoring. DH Center, uh, of course, is sponsoring it. Um, I'm helping to organize that with Derek Bruff uh, at the Center for Teaching and Helen Shin in English. It's going to be great. Uh, you should come out. There's a lightning panel session where you can come and pitch an idea just about anything about games. If you're interested in that, check out... Um, the website on on the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt. I think it's Vanderbilt CFT slash play yeah. is the URL. Um, and you can check my pinned tweet for more info. So check that out. That's really great. Thanks a lot, guys. This has been your Halloween scary people. We were ghosts Whoa. the whole time. Ba-dum, 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 I am no phantom. I'm figment of your imagination. I'm real flesh and blood. Ghosts. If you do not see me as your own choice. Thank y'all for joining us. Enjoy. Take care. Bye, guys. Hey everyone, Kyle here. Uh, thanks for listening to our frightacular Halloween episode. Sorry it's a little bit late and super not on Halloween. Um, if you can't tell, uh, it's just me now in the studio. Uh, it's about two weeks after we recorded, and I am super sick while editing this one. Um, I just wanted to leave you diehard fans who waited until after the credits uh, with a little Easter egg that I cut out of the episode. If you couldn't tell, I wasn't the hugest fan of Bloodborne, and so I skillfully sidetracked us into talking about Legend of Zelda for like three minutes. And I thought it was funny, and I'm editing this, so I added it back in full uncut right here. Uh, So the next voices you hear will be Derek, Terrell, and I vamping about Halloween a little bit. Uh, Derek tries his own intro bit, which we also cut out, and then a quick sidetrack into Hyrule. Uh, Take it away, past us. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. <laughs> Just to emphasize, <laughs> this may or may not come Whether out. Whether or not this is October 31st, On you're Halloween. listening to this. Oh, also, um, this is my intro bit. Uh, Kyle, give me a high five. Like, literally, give me a high five. Yes, that was physical. Yeah, tattoo. we're Terrell, here. Oh, give me yes. a high five. Boom. Get closer, though. <laughs> yes. Good audio. We yes. actually are in the same room again, yes. and that makes me happy. The Back three the pieces of the Triforce have now have become together, and that makes me wonder uh, which one of us would be Ooh. which part of the Triforce. Oh, can we talk about also, Legend of Zelda instead of this dumb okay, game? So, <laughs> I'm so Kyle really loved this game, and he can't wait to talk about it. But what are the parts Jeez. again? Knowledge, strength, power. courage, wisdom. Wow, I got that wrong. Strength, power. 
Courage, oh, power. You're right. Power, courage, wisdom. Power, courage. Okay. Power, yeah. courage, wisdom. Am I power? <laughs> I mean, you do run the stuff. I don't think I'm wisdom. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm wisdom either. I, I think gladly, gladly take wisdom. I'm I think, I think you're courage. courage. No, I think you're courage. <laughs> you are wearing green. Which maybe is you're, maybe you're power and I'm courage. Yeah. You know, I'm like, oh, we're let's make a podcast, guys. It'll be great. Come on, it's gonna be great. Hey, do y'all know how th- this podcast got started? <laughs> Derek put up posters <laughs> put saying, "Do you like video games and want to talk about them? Call me. I'm Derek. I'm not a serial killer." He should have put that at the end, oh, but he God. didn't. Well, I thought it was implied. the worst part about that was I remember <laughs> looking at those in the graduate little mm, area, the, the printing area, RIP. <laughs> the spook- thinking, yeah, spooky things, you know, spectacular, <laughs> scary things that are you know now dead and will never come back to yeah. life. And thinking to myself, I want to do a podcast with a bunch of undergrads, <laughs> and then I got an email from someone who is definitely not an undergrad. Yeah, but was a serial killer, and their name was Derek, the brave Link esque Derek. What's this narrative fiction we had that I do your voices and it's just me, or do Terrell do? We- do who was the one doing everyone else's? Who was doing someone else's voice? That well, was there was the point De- where we just assumed that, yeah. That's right. Derek and, and I were the same person. And how weird yeah. it was for me to just be in the room That's what it with was. one person talking to himself in different voices for, I don't know how many episodes we had had up to that point. But See, yeah. Isn't just Very talking... Very ghoulish. <laughs> isn't just talking about the metafiction of our podcast way more interesting than... <laughs> That's meta reflection is learning, and we're 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 as I'm arguing in my job applications. That is valuable pedagogical experience. Speaking of the meta, well done. Uh, yeah, no, I don't have anything about no, that. That's I'm fine. Just gonna go. Ahead.